much of our enterprise, or the enterprise of our days, I think, consists of looking for life. We seek to gather the basic materials for our ongoing survival and then so order them that we enjoy the richest experience of life that is available to us. And this seems to me to be eminently sensible. It's precisely in which ways we order our lives to enjoy the richest experience that I think is our focus this morning. And one of the things about this story is that Jesus very clearly anticipates his death. Now, there are some things in life we'd really rather not know. Uh, my youngest daughter, Pay, likes to go climbing light poles here in the green. They're quite high, and uh, she'll climb up to the top of them and yell out, Hey, Dad, look at me! <laughs> and frankly, I don't want to know because uh, I find it distressing because I also know, as I do, about gravity and blunt trauma injuries and this kind of thing. Um, I can't look. It distresses me and scares me. I would love Pay to be exploring her capacities and I want her to feel free to do that. The issue is my own weak capacity to cope with the fear of what might happen, that she might fall and damage herself and so I need to look away for my sake. But that renders me unable to work with Pay on her climbing technique. Uh, if I was to engage with her, my own fear of her falling would get in the way. Because when we cannot look at something squarely and clearly, it handicaps our capacity to deal well with it. And most people prefer not to look clearly at the possibility of their own death. We prefer to overlook the reality that one day the world will go on without us. And as a consequence, I think we deal less effectively with the entirety of our lives. In a way, we might not uh, anticipate being clear-eyed about our death would add anything to us, help us do life better in any way. But Jesus really was very, very aware of everything that was going on. Now, we might not know the time or place, but Jesus seemed to have a pretty keen idea. He thought, this is the way things are going to unfold and this is where it's going to happen and he basically appeared to know. And this willingness on his part, I think, to engage the unpalatable realities that were going on around him meant that he could predict how things were going to go down for him. And as a result, he made every single one of his days count to the most that he could. He knew his opportunities for ministry were time limited. They would come to an end. The Gospel offers us a picture of Jesus taking all of his opportunities to show the love of God to whoever he was with. A clear-eyed sense of the term of our natural lives means being aware of the glorious grace of each and every day and spending our limited time as wisely as we can. It actually increases the importance of each breath and makes each day more valuable to us. 
Now this might seem kind of counter-instinctual in a way. Many of us, if we were able to uh, see the approach of our own demise, would spend all of our efforts seeking to avoid that demise. Our survival instinct would kick in and we would take evasive action, whether that was running to the hills or blaming someone else or whatever it might be. Jesus himself had all manner of opportunity to avoid his arrest and execution. Right up until the soldiers came to him on the mount in the dark, he could have eluded them if he had wanted to. If he didn't want to give himself up, he could have easily escaped. And Peter rebukes Jesus as he's forecasting this eventuality uh, for not planning to be to take evasive action. And Peter's almost saying, God forbid, we won't let this happen to you and neither should you let it happen to you. And Jesus responds with a still harsher rebuke of Peter. Peter, you're thinking just like everybody else, but not in the way of the kingdom. Jesus was never going to run off. He had no plans to evade his persecutors He was functioning functioning from a radically different sense of where life is to be discovered. See, there's an instinct that's common to humans and it variously looks like maybe greed or the need to control or perhaps even a tendency to blow our own trumpet. But underneath all of these behaviours is a kind of fear, the fear of not getting what you want and that in fact masks an even deeper fear of missing out on what you need. Uh, Have you come across the term FOMO, fear of missing out? Right. It's a very powerful motivator in our culture. It compels even the billionaire to go and make another billion dollars as if they didn't already have more than they could need or even use. In the same way it drives us who aren't billionaires to purchase more clothes than we could reasonably wear or consume more calories than our bodies could realistically burn up. Getting another billion doesn't enhance the billionaire's life one iota. Owning more than we can use or consuming more than we need does not give us a better life. We actually begin to suffer under the very weight of the excess We get possessed by our possessions. We get weighed down by our indulgence. There's simply no benefit in gaining the whole world if you do not discover life in the midst of it. And sometimes there's a need to let go of these survival strategies that are so baked into us and take a chance on something that is more than what our instincts would go for. My dad's parents had to send him away at the tender age of eight years old from Nazi Germany off to England. And they weren't thinking of their own comfort and survival when they did this. There was an overwhelming threat at every turn for their family. Jews were being persecuted throughout Germany as World War I, uh, World War II, I should say, was getting started. And his parents, I'm sure, would have wanted to hold their son, to hold him and protect him. But they had the foresight to realise that they would not be able to protect him. Their son's only chance was if he was able to get out of the country and his parents needed 
to let go of him in hope. I find it difficult to fathom how I might have responded in a similar situation. Letting go of my girls at the tender age of eight into a dangerous world and an uncertain future without me. That would be a form of death to me. All my instincts would want to hold on to them for my own sake. To let go in the hope of a life beyond what is currently known is counter-instinctual. It is to hope in something beyond mere survival. It is a hope born of faith. And where is this life to be found anyway? It's not in the taking of whatever you can for yourself. Like you think of the game Monopoly, right? And it's a fun game to play. Our kids love playing it. It pays a killer at it. Never play pay at Monopoly. Um, It has a start. It has a finish. And the idea is to get as much stuff together in the interim so that you become the winner, basically to make everyone else bankrupt. But despite what you might hear around the traps, in life, constantly winning actually isn't the way to have the richest life you could have. In life, the person who ends up with the biggest pile of stuff is generally not the one who has made the most helpful contributions. The biggest pile of stuff is no substitute for good family relationships or strong and deep friendship or community. All the stuff a person owns does not build trust in a community. There are compelling indicators, in fact, that it does precisely the opposite. The data overwhelmingly indicates that having lots of stuff breeds jealousy and rivalry and doesn't make anyone any happier. By contrast, the most rewarding stuff or the most rewarding experiences in life are the times when we really offer life to someone else. If you ask someone about the things that were richest, are richest in their life, they will usually cherish those memories and moments where they really brought something to someone else. To be instrumental in someone else becoming more fully alive is the most exhilarating experience available, I believe. And it's one of those moments where we most fully live out the image of God in which we are made because our God is all about bringing life to others. And this experience becomes more acute and intense when it involves a freely made yet quite costly choice on our part. That is to say, when our love means that we choose to give our life to or for someone else. And you can see this in families or close friendships often, perhaps parents and their children. I well remember the exhausting days when we had two girls under the age of three and the the constant demands and the lack of sleep and the absence of time to spend with Joe, or even to have thoughts of my own in my head. And I remember at the times trying to express this to a friend of mine. I said, it's like my girls are consuming my life. And then I thought about it for a second longer and said, but you know what? I wouldn't have it any other way. Being a parent felt like it was costing me everything And yet I couldn't think of a better way for my life to be spent. 
There are all sorts of ways we can give our lives to others and attentive listening in a conversation. Gestures, big or small, that say, I see you, I know what you're going through, I care about you. Holding someone in our prayers, the most secret of all things to do in a way. These are ways that we give ourselves for other people. And in living a life that we offer to others, that's where we overcome death. When our life fosters life for someone else, when we make choices that cost us yet bring life to someone else, this is just one of the indicators that assure us, I believe, that we shall live beyond our death. In the last little while I found myself um, speaking about my father rather a lot. He died almost six, well, just over six years ago, about 12 months before I started here at Mustard Seed. And I've been reflecting on my own life a lot lately and I've been seeing more and more clearly the ways in which my dad is alive in me. The particular traits and behaviours I picked up from him and also the com- there's conversations that I engage with him in my heart. So if I'm making a decision, I might just kind of run it past dad in my heart. It's a, a funny thing. I do, I I check things out with him, I run them past him. He's still very much alive in me. The final verse of our reading this morning indicates that some who originally heard Jesus utter these words would not taste death until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so I imagine there were some there who saw Jesus make the ultimate sacrifice of offering himself. They witnessed him become the king of those who love beyond their own death. And in a few days after his execution, they also witnessed him come alive again. They witnessed the resurrection. See, Jesus' kingdom is not intimidated or diminished by death. It is a kingdom of life that continues to give life to others even beyond death. And I think that is eternal life. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the way you have shown us life. We get so caught up with such rubbish things, And yet the most important things are so few and so available to us and we want to live into those things, set free from deception, set free from fear, set free to give ourselves and so grow your kingdom to the glory of your name. Amen.